if someone just to say, you know, here's a rock, eat it just as a dare, I wouldn't. I mean, but if it's a part of a culture, if it's a part of some kind of tradition, if there's something else behind it to eat it, then I will. And I do it because I really generally want to know what that experience is about. And then usually there's always more. There's a history, there's a story, there's a reason. And I want to know that too. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. Every week on this podcast, we celebrate the idea that some of our favorite dishes have really interesting backstories. And today, have I got some stories for you. I'm talking to Emmy Maid of Emmy Made in Japan, a woman whose career in food has taken her around the world and back in time. Greetings, my beautiful lovelies. It's Emmy, and welcome back. Now today, I'm going to be tasting eggs that I have been preserving for one year. I'm going to be comparing the year-old eggs with these eggs, which are just one or two days old. They came. Emmy is a YouTube sensation with two million followers, y'all, and she is a brave girl. I am in awe of you. I love that you have a fascination for old-timey or historic recipes. I love that you are so genuine and just so brave. And welcome to the Homemade Podcast, Emmy. We're so excited to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Girl, you will try anything. I will. I will. I am really curious. I am the opposite. Really? I'm a big chicken. Marty. Listen, I'm brave when it comes to things. I am not brave when it comes to food. Not a bit. And people who really know me know that. But I am so fascinated with you. (laughs) I could just watch your videos forever. I learned something in every single one of them. Oh, good. I want you to tell us a little bit about how you got started and how you built up this international, wildly engaged audience of millions of followers. It was an accident, like all these kind of beautiful things that happened. It was really just an accident. I started when my husband and I were living in Japan. I was, we were teaching English and I just didn't know anything about editing whatsoever. And I really missed talking to people in fluent English. I was teaching English, but I just missed talking and I talk a lot. So I said, well, I'll go to the grocery store. Always have been captivated by food. So I've just picked up some things as I went shopping. I'm like, well, what if I just film myself talking about whatever it is that I'm exploring or opening or tasting? And just it just started from there. So it was mostly candies. There's just an amazing candy selection in Japan with these kits that you can make and assemble and pour and shape. I'm like, this is me. So here I am, a grown woman sitting in front of a laptop in front of a window, opening packages of candy and mixing. And it was the best. It just started from there. And I just continued. And that was, gosh, we're coming on 10 years now. Wow. So a while ago. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you and your husband just packed up and moved to Japan because you wanted to experience the culture. We did. We did. My husband had actually had been to Japan in the past doing teaching as well. But I also, it was just in the time of my life where I knew that I wanted to have this kind of live abroad experience. Always wanted to do it. Regretted not doing it in college. And I wanted to do that before I really kind of settled down and had a family. So I knew this was my last opportunity to do it. So I did it. And so so glad I did. Very, very humbling experience living someplace else. <laughs> it's true. I've lived a few other places yeah. as well. And it is when you don't know a soul and you don't have a go-to, it is absolutely, you realize you are on your own and you have to make your own way. Oh, yeah. But you, girl, you did it. My goodness. And then you got millions of people to jump in and come with you. Well, it was wonderful because I think I've gained so much from it, but these kind of virtual followers and virtual subscribers and just friends that I've made through this media has just been so wonderful. So I started doing these Japanese foods and then people started sending me packages of food from their home 
some countries. So it was a series called Emmy Eats. So I would be like eating a box of Danish or all kinds of things that were so very much pivotal to Danish culture that I had no familiarity with. So it was just wonderful. It'd be just like Christmas, be opening packages and not knowing how to read them and opening them and tasting them and eating things wrong. And of course, all the Danes that were watching would get a great laugh. I got a package from Ukraine or it was just a joy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you got to experience their world. Right, right. And and what they found delicious and interesting and comforting and heartwarming and uh, the things that they right. love. That's pretty amazing. I do think, and I think this is why you're so successful, is that food is our common bond. You know, right. I don't care where you're from. I don't care where well, how you grew up or I don't even care how old you are. There's one thing that unites everybody, right. every culture, no matter where you go, and it's food or drink. I know that when I go to a new place and they come out and they offer me a tea or a coffee or something, they mean that as a genuine welcome to my world sort of a thing. Right. I, I don't care where you're from. That joins us and unites us globally. Well, we all need sustenance. Like you say, We you don't need a language to understand it. But food, we all need to eat. We all need to put something in these gobs of ours. We can say, here, taste this. And we can say, this is good. There's something very nurturing and maternal about it too, like giving sustenance to someone to feed them or welcome them or offer something to someone. I, I love that too. Where do you get your inspiration? Is it from your viewers who send you ideas? Yeah. A lot of them are from viewers. I'll have a video about some kind of subject and they will leave comments or they'll get in touch with me via social media and say, Emma, you've got to try this. Or have you seen this? Or have you heard of this? Or oftentimes people would volunteer to send me things. Or uh, I am a farmer and I make this. Or I sell these. And, and so there's all kinds of things that my followers have taught me about things that I had never even heard of, which is just wonderful. I love this kind of communal feel about those kinds of things. The ones I really like are the ones that are old-timey or historic in some way. Right. Those are the ones I really like. And weirdly enough, I thought I sort of knew a lot about that. But after watching all your videos, I'm like, I am a novice. I don't know anything about old-timey recipes. I was particularly intrigued by the pine rosin and potatoes. <laughs> I, I was completely fascinated with that. Can you tell a little bit about that story and how you came upon that? Oh, yeah. And they make beautiful potatoes, by the way. And it comes out of a necessity. I think all these wonderful things often come out out of necessity and resourcefulness. The story goes that pine rosin is actually is a byproduct of turpentine making. So turpentine comes from the sap of the pine trees and then it's distilled for the turpentine, which is used as a solvent and, and in painting. And then you get this clear, almost amber looking solid material, which is the rosin. It's just so beautiful. And so there are large amounts of it. So people say, well, what can we do with this? And so of course you can use it for, you know, you can use it on bow strings, on violins, but then you can also cook with it. I had no idea. Yes. You can't eat the rosin itself, but you can use it as you would for deep fat frying or something. It's a carrier to cook the potatoes. So, so cool. I don't exactly remember how I stumbled upon it. I think I saw a kit for pine rosin potatoes. I'm like, what is this? I saw that in the video. I'm like, wait, there's a kit for that. You can actually get a kit that includes the pan, the rosin, everything you need to make these potatoes. And you said in the video that that was the most delicious potato you think you might have ever had. It really was. I think part of it was also just the process of it all, which kind of was just a big, big tease. And I think that's another part of food that I love is this kind of communal 
aspect of it. And then there's a process to it. And there's almost a ritual. So to make these potatoes, you take the pine rosin, you have to heat it up and you would do this outside because there's such a strong smell of pine that happened. You, You couldn't do this inside. It's just so strong. So then you cook it up, it melts. And then you drop your potatoes in their jackets, the whole potato right into the pot in the pine rosin. And they're just bubbling up. You've got your fire. I imagine like in the, in the old thing, you know, you had just your big cauldron there right. and get it going. So then about half an hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, depending on how big your potato is, the potatoes start to float and they come up and then you use your tongs that you have just specifically for this making because everything gets covered in the rosin, which is kind of like tar. But initially when you're melting the pine rosin, it, it's got this clear amber color. But as you keep cooking with it and it turns this kind of black tarish anyways. So you take your potatoes out and then you wrap them in um, newspaper, just like you would a little candy, knot them all up and the pine rosin solidifies and the potatoes hot inside. And then once it hardens and you can keep them. So that's another practical thing. You can keep the potatoes for weeks. So it was a preservation thing. Right, right. Oh, fascinating. I love that you've taken this and put the story, the backstory to these recipes and have provided, like you said, a time machine to go way back and see what our ancestors did and how they prepared food. I think it's great. By the way, I love that chicken one too. Yeah. So beggar's chicken is a story. Like It's more of almost a myth or a legend that there's this poor beggar who stole a chicken. And then the emperor came looking for the person who stole the chicken. And in quick haste, he threw the chicken into the mud and then proceeded to bake it as a means of cooking it. But then the emperor ends up eating it and declares it the most delicious chicken. But the point was the idea that you take a chicken and you cover it in mud and then you cook it in a fire. And I imagine traditionally that would have been a fire fire, but it's still made today, this type of beggar's chicken. And you wrap a chicken, now you would wrap it in leaves to protect it from the mud and lotus leaves. And then you wrap mud around clay and then you bake it in an oven. Some people actually still put it in a fire and you put it in there for several hours and it bakes it. But the clay becomes the vessel in which the chicken is cooked. And then the best part is the ceremony of cracking the clay shell that you've just made with a hammer. So they'll bring it to your table. You have a hammer and you get a break and crack the shell and there's your beautifully kind of steamed braised chicken inside. That's whole. Now I have seen that before. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. did that originate? Where did that come from? Originally, I think the story comes, the, that legend comes from China, but I think many other cultures have similar kinds of means of cooking chicken or food in clay or salt or some sort of something that encases it. It just makes sense. Before there were pots and pans, how did people cook food besides just cooking it over the fire? Or in Hawaii, for example, there's lots of pit cooking. We do that in the South too. Yes. We put a pig in the ground. That's right. There's a Hank Williams Jr. song about, yeah, I'm going to put a pig in the ground. All my rowdy friends are coming over tonight. I used to do that in Chicago and people are like, what is wrong with this girl? No, it's beautiful. She cooks her food in a ditch. It's beautiful. It's an all-day process and it's a tradition. It becomes, again, this kind of uh, ceremony and this process of doing it. You have to build, you have to dig the hole and you line it with rocks and then you make your fire and you get your leaves and you get all these things and it it usually takes community. You're cooking a big piece of meat and everybody gets a bit of it. It brings everyone together. I just, I just love it. A lot of these things are just flat out fun. Like you clearly (laughs) had so much fun making that beggar's chicken. Your joy when you broke open that clay was so evident. What other recipes did you have a lot of fun making like that? There's usually something that I'm really excited about, a recipe for me to even do it. And it's usually when the recipe turns out. Right. It could be a 1950s Grammys 
jello recipe. It could be anything, but just getting that jello out pristine and not all over my floor is an accomplishment that should be celebrated. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it is so true. We'll have more with Emmy made right after the break. Welcome back to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan, and today I'm talking to Emmy Made of Emmy Made in Japan. I am very intrigued about the background of you. So I know you're married, you have children. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your personal life. You live in Rhode Island now. Rhode Island is the tiniest state of the Union, and it's not even an island. It is. I've been there <laughs> once. It's beautiful there. It is. We love it. It's more of a town. It wants to call itself a city of Providence, but we love it. It's got what we need. Boston is definitely more of a real city kudos to Boston. So if we want to go to see some theater or some, well, there's some theater here too, but yeah, we love it. We love the access to the shore here. It's just so beautiful. And the fresh seafood. Y'all have amazing seafood and I love coming up there. Chef Michelle Regussis is a really good friend of mine from my season of Food Network Star and she lived and worked up there for a long time and so I would come up and do some events and just having the lobster and everything just right there, it was amazing. You have two young children. Oh, two boys. Two boys. Now, are your children adventurous eaters also? They are. As a parent, I really wanted to instill that to my family. I don't force ever. My youngest still does not like vegetables, but that was me as a child. I didn't even like starch. I just wanted meat. Just anything meat, drumstick, yes. Meat, salami, any meat. No, I don't want anything green. But my mom would always, we'd have these battles. Eat that one piece of broccoli. Standoffs, really. So my, my youngest is like that, but I, I don't even bother with that because I'm like, I'm not going to even get anywhere with this kid. Yeah, it'll come around. If you plant a garden and let them help plant those things, they'll eat them. If they planted them, they'll eat them. Oh yeah. If you, they pull up a carrot and they, they eat it right off, you know, my older one loves vegetables, but the younger one, but I don't fight them about it. People always want to know, did your family try that thing, that abomination that you just created? And I said, Hey, I always offer, like my kids will usually come back home from school and they'll be sitting there on the counter like, what is that? And I said, well, you can tell them and I offer it. And you know, sometimes <laughs> they say yes, or sometimes they say no. And I said, Hey, it's up to you whether you not want to try it. But I did this little series of a few years ago of eating um, bugs for Christmas, like a little countdown to Christmas. And my kids were all over it. They're like, yeah, this is great. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, boys. That's why I'm sure they thought that was like, Oh, it was fun. It was super Amazing. fun. I bet they're the heroes of the school. My mom lets us eat bugs, but on a regular night when you're just mom, yeah. what, what do you make for your family? I make no nonsense food because I'm busy. When, when I didn't have children, I would do, you know, more involved recipes, but I don't like fussy recipes and I want ones that taste good. So simple things, things that I can cook in less than an hour. So a curry, what do we have for dinner last night? I made like chicken tenders. I make some Japanese recipes because we lived in Japan. So I'll make a miso soup and a pot of rice Ooh, yummy. and then we'll have a piece of fish and I'll just broil it for 10 minutes in the oven, but really simple stuff. And then on the weekends, I might do a little bit something more ambitious. I might make dumplings or something. I think everybody's like that during the week where everybody wants to keep it super simple. That's right. And they save their big adventurous time consuming cooking for the weekends where they can spend a little bit more time in the kitchen. And right. you obviously have a very well stocked kitchen. What's your number one go-to piece of equipment? What do you use the most? I mean, I use my stovetop the most, but I think the thing I probably talk about most that I really love, and I think as an Asian American, maybe others can agree, is my rice cooker because we eat a lot of rice. We probably eat rice almost every day. And I love this thing, this thing I've had for years. It's moved with me many, many times. And I just love that it 
cooks perfect rice. People ask me like, your rice is so good. How do you cook it? I'm like, I don't know. I just put it in this machine and I push the button and it, it just does it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have one. I never got one, but you're making me want to go get one. I love rice. And you know, we grow a lot of rice down here in the South and Louisiana grows a lot of Mississippi too. They grow a lot of beautiful rice, but I've never gotten a rice cooker. So you're making me want to go get one. I could only recommend it highly if you eat a lot of rice. I mean, we eat it as a staple almost every day. So in that sense, I love it because I can set a timer for like a 12 hour timer. I'll wash the rice and have it sitting in the thing. And by dinner time, it's ready. So I don't have to think about a starch. It's already there. They have fancier ones now that can cook breads and quinoa and all that. But right. the one I have is pretty just straight. It just cooks rice. So did you get started cooking at home with your parents or with your mom? Or did, did you learn from family? You just seem like it's inside you, ingrained in you. Cooking is a thing that you just know. Yeah, I love food. I think I love it. I love anything about food. If I'm traveling, I'm always looking at the food. I'm thinking of my next two meals. I'm like obsessed. So your mom was a good cook? Yeah, my mom is obsessed with food as well. She's like this tiniest, smallest, thinnest person you've ever met. But she always is thinking about food and would always love to cook for us. And my brother and I, I have a younger brother. Uh, on Saturdays, we'd watch PBS. They would have these little marathon, you know, cooking shows. So we'd be up. I watch them too. Yeah, yeah. from like nine to like three o'clock. We would just marathon watch like all of them and we would record them and just obsessed with food. So I think that's where it started. So a lot of my training, if you want to call it, comes from those cooking shows. So we would watch Jacques and Julia. We would watch Jacques Pepin by himself. All of them, like Frugal Gourmet, um, Lydia Bastianich. This is before even like the Food Network. Right. I used to watch the Galloping Gourmet. Yep. And yeah, yes. run home from school in time to watch the Galloping Gourmet. And then here we had Justin Wilson. Oh, of course. You know, the oh, Cajun cook. Onion. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, at least we'll run home from school to watch them. What a bunch of nerds we are. That's the best. My brothers wanted to watch like Scooby-Doo and I'm like, get out of the way. I'm watching uh, Justin Wilson. Oh, we would just wait for him to, I'm like, I hope this dish has onions in it because I want him to say onions. Please say onions, Justin. Onion. (laughs) You're like me. I think you watch for the accent. All of it. All of it. And we would always turn it off when Martin Yan came on because we're like, oh, he's hamming it up. Oh my gosh, you can't watch. I mean, we, although we love the representation, but we're just like, I can't watch him do another joke about a cleaver again. But we did watch the Fugu Gourmet and Graham Care and all of them. Great chefs. We loved great chefs because it was... Oh, me too. That was like we got to travel. I think the one of the things that you're so good at is describing food. Oh, thank I you. have a problem with that. I got like awesome, good, and delicious. Right. I'm like, after that, I don't have any more adjectives. You are so good at it. Your descriptions, they draw the viewer in. You're making people like salivate with your descriptions. And even if it was something I wouldn't want to eat, you make me want <laughs> to eat it because it just sounds sounds so delicious. How do you come up with all that? Is it just because it it speaks to you somehow? I think so. I think it also comes down to my mind too. I like to break things down with food, with anything. I want to know how it works and what the pieces are that makes the thing work, whether it's building a structure or going through my beehives. I just want to break it down. So the same thing happens when I'm making food and eating it. So I want to break it down, what I'm tasting, what it makes me feel like, what it reminds me of, what it makes me think of. My tagline for my channel for a while was like vicarious calories never tasted so good because I really want people to vicariously 
experience what I'm experiencing. I think you nail it. Thank you. I do. I mean, to me, that's one of the hardest things about doing a cooking show of any kind. And when I did Food Network Star, Bobby Flay would say, if I hear the word delicious, you're out. And I would think, oh my gosh, that leaves me with two words. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Right, but you right. do such a good job with that. You think that comes from your curiosity about how something works. Yes. The curiosity of how things work, but and also I understand that in the media that I am presenting this food to, people cannot taste what it is I'm tasting. And I find when I watch videos or cooking shows and they're tasting something, I want to know what it tastes like. And I get very frustrated when they just say it's delicious or this is really good. And like, that tells me nothing, you know? Oh, I know. You know? And it's awful. And I am so lazy <laughs> like that. I, I got to do a better job, but you just make me want to dive right in and try it. Like get in my car, drive to the store, get the stuff, make the recipe. But I will say the shocking thing to me was that some of your recipes are super, super, super simple. Yeah. Like it's not everything is super complex or no. steeped in all these hours of traditional cooking. Some of the, like you did a lemon icebox pie. My mom made one about once a week. I was shocked to find that there. I'd never heard of it before. And it came out of some other recipe that I did for a cremor tart that came from South Africa, another warm region where you can't have dairy. You may not have refrigeration. And so you have to use these canned products. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is genius. So because you're taking a dairy and then you're mixing it with an acid, you're getting this reaction that essentially kind of curdles it. And then you get a thickened instant custard. I'm like, what is this? This is, I'd never heard of a lemon icebox pie until just uh, a couple months. My mom would make them in the summer. Now in the other months, she would make a lemon meringue pie with a more of a traditional right. custard with the eggs right. and everything. Right. But the lemon icebox pie was a staple at our house in the summertime. It's so easy. I mean, the staple. And, you know, people are like, well, how do you tell the difference between them? Like, well, one you cook and the other you don't. Right. One has a meringue and the other one has a whipped cream. Right, right. But I was shocked to find that there. So it was really just the curiosity of how the acid and the canned sweetened condensed milk would work together. Is that? Yeah, what? that. And also that it claimed that it could be a dessert in five minutes. I said, you know what? They have this on every little journal in front of the cash register. Like you can make this dessert in five minutes. But I'm like, I think you really can make this in five minutes. And I really want to know, is it really that simple? Just take these two cans and you mix it with three quarters of a cup of juice. That's it. And it really is that it. That's it. It's amazing. Yeah. Listeners, if you're sitting at home and you're still quarantined or next time you do your store run, go on YouTube and look at her lemon ice box pie recipe up because it's so simple and it's like pantry things for the most part with a lemon. Right. Well, what's so cool is like, so I, I made the recipe, but then other people were saying, oh, we make a version of this using lime juice. And we use, instead of using a graham cracker crust, we use cookies. And it's so cool that there's these kind of international analogies. It's very, very similar. Oh, and a lot of variations on it. Like there's a recipe in one of my cookbooks from a restaurant that's down in the Black Belt of Alabama. And it's called Black Bottom Pie, which uses ginger snaps to make the crust. Right. And then same sort of techniques for the filling and whipped cream topping. But there are lots of them. Key lime pie in a lot of places is made the very same way with sweetened condensed milk and lime juice. Right. And then we have, the, of course, you know, the cookies and cream version. And you have lots of versions of those things. But there are quick, easy homemade dessert that anybody, even the kids can make it. That's right. It seems like you'll try anything. Yes. Are there things you wouldn't try or you have refused to try? No. 
Nothing. Nothing. I think if someone's eaten it and it's considered part of a culture, I mean, I wouldn't, if someone just to say, you know, here's a rock, eat it just as a dare, I wouldn't. But if it's a part of a culture, if it's a part of some kind of tradition, if there's something else behind it to eat it, then I will. And I do it because I really generally want to know what that experience is about. And then usually there's always more. There's a history, there's a story, there's a reason. And I want to know that too. But first comes the curiosity of the food itself. So, yeah, I think if you'll eat a tarantula, then you'll pretty much try anything. Yeah, there's nothing. How do you even get a tarantula? You can just buy them online like you can buy everything in a can. It comes, <laughs> it does, it comes processed. It comes, I don't know what they do to it, that dehydrated or something. And no. Yes. You are. I'm serious. You don't eat the, <laughs> I don't eat the abdomen part, like the big part that's like the big gnarly part. Don't eat that part because. Oh my God, I'm going to die right this no. minute. But the legs are good. They're crunchy. Sort of sounds like a crab, really. You don't eat that gross part in the middle. Well, some people do, but you know. Right, right, right. So the rest of it. Yeah. Think of all the insects and things I've tried. They're quite tasty. They have like a nice kind of crunchy texture and they have an interesting snack-like taste. They're good. I might die. No. I mean, I'm just going to say. I think with insects, the worst part I think would be like if I were to go to Australia and do like, um, what do they call them? They call it a grub tucker and botching it. But you actually go on this journey and you actually eat the insects and grubs as you go along. And I think that might be more of a challenge if someone were to give me just a big fat grub that's kind of squirming around and to pop that. I would do it, but I think that would be harder than just a tarantula. But you are absolutely my hero. No. I would not I wouldn't even go in the room much Come less on. try it. No. Yes. What I, I would not hurt you. <laughs> Yeah, I will not. <laughs> I, I'm going to eat a crab and that's going to be about the extent of it for me. That's my spider. I will eat a crab. It's the same number of legs, the whole thing. Crabs are delicious. Oh my gosh. And we have the best ones here. We really do. I have to tell you. And it's the whole fun process of going and catching them. Down on the lower coastline of Alabama, on Mobile Bay, a lot of my friends have homes down there on the bay and they'll put out crab traps. Yes. And, you know, we'll get the crab and then we'll just cook them right there in our big old cast iron skillet and fry them up right there on the side of the beach. And it's so fun. Is it blue crab? Yeah, blue crab. And they're oh, so yeah. delicious. And then, of course, when the season is right, we have the soft shells, which are the best. For That's when we fry them. Otherwise, we'll do like a crab boil or whatever. In fact, here in Alabama, I don't know if you know this, because you lived in Japan, you may be aware of it, but here we have something called a jubilee. Mm-mm. A jubilee is when the water loses oxygen and the crab and the flounder and the shrimp and the eel, they swim to the shore to try to get out. And when people see this jubilee happening, the homes along the bay have bells and they'll ring the bell. Come on. Run outside with their baskets and their nets and they start scooping up all the seafood. And then there are crab crackens and fish fries and shrimp bowls for days and days and days. And back in the day before there was refrigeration, you know, they would have to cook it all up and eat it right there in a couple of days time. But they have that in Mobile Bay and down on our eastern shore down there on the bay. And then they also have it in one place in Japan and nowhere else in the world. That's great. Emmy, tell our listeners where they can find you on YouTube. Y'all, if you want to learn to cook and you want to try either things that are pretty typical that you just never thought of or something that you would never even imagine, you got to go watch these videos and follow Emmy because she's going to coach you through it. She's fascinating. Where do we find you on YouTube? 
You can find me at youtube.com slash Emmy Made in Japan, or if you just search Emmy Made in Japan, I will come up. Even if you search up Emmy, you'll, you'll find me. Listen, Emmy, I've had the most fun talking to you. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I mean, really forever. I just find you fascinating. <laughs> I am so tickled that finally I've gotten to meet you and talk to you, and I hope we'll be friends forever. And that invitation to come visit in Alabama stands. I'm going to watch everything you do from here on. But I thank you so much for sharing such a big part of your world with us here on the Homemade Podcast. Thanks, Marty. I appreciate it. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. As she said, you can find Emmy Made on YouTube by searching for Emmy Made in Japan. She's got thousands of videos, including ones where she eats tarantulas, centipedes, and beetles, <laughs> and a whole lot of regular foods that even I would try. Coming up on the next episode of Homemade, one of my absolute best friends, Chef Justin Warner of Food Network Star, Guy's Grocery Games, and Marvel's Eat the Universe. They made purple ketchup and green ketchup for a while. And then before that, the predecessor was they made pizza, taco, and I want to say hamburger flavored ranch. Right? <laughs> Terrifying, right? <laughs> That's awful. That sounds so Chef, terrible. I, I would take that stuff to the head, man. That was like shot of whiskey for a five-year-old. <laughs> you know, it's like do a shot of pizza ranch. We are going to have so much fun. Don't miss it. Subscribe to the podcast right now. And please, we'd love your feedback. If you could, rate this podcast and leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at allrecipes.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade. Homemade.